Excellent. Hey, how about you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. It's good to be here. I, it's really good to be here. And it's good to be here because you're still here. Um, last couple years were really difficult for anybody trying to lead anything. Uh, I just got back from a, a cohort that I do uh, with a group of guys that I've been meeting with for the past five or six years, different pastors uh, in similar settings as, as, as this, as me. And we started with 12 and we're down to four that are still pastoring churches uh, because it was hard. It was really hard. And I am super encouraged because you, Brett, and the leaders here, you walked the line, you led well, and you're still here. So uh, it's, a, it's a blessing, and that's, that is God's grace because it wasn't easy. Uh, perhaps the greatest experience for the follower of Jesus is the day that they or you first believed the gospel and became a Christian. Do you remember that day? You might have been really young, maybe just like a, a five-year-old in a Sunday school class, watching some sweet flanograph being pasted up in front of you, seeing that cross and giving your life to Jesus. Might have been even in the past year or two, just kind of looking for answers, trying to figure out what is going on. How do we deal with pain and, and suffering and hardship? But that day, it's that day where you finally got it, where you realize, look, I have a problem. I have been substituting myself for God, either by religion, which is trying to be your own savior by obedience to some kind of moral standard or law, or perhaps by irreligion, trying to be your own Lord by simply disobedience to whatever moral standards there are. Whatever the case, you owned that you are more sinful than you ever thought, but you are more loved than you could ever hope for. That is God's grace. And you believe that God accepted you for Jesus' sake, and you knew that you were loved and accepted because of his record and not because of your own list. Because of his death, you now have life. That's an amen. That was a great day. When you finally captured it, when you finally got it. Now, as a follower of Jesus, that experience of joy and excitement, it continues when you get to see someone who doesn't know Jesus become impacted by the gospel. I mean, that was such a cool thing. You guys saw the baptism slide come up and you cheered. Why? Because that's a great day in Redeemer's history. That's a great day. Amongst your friends, it's a great day in the family of God. And and for you, you've probably had opportunity at some point in your life to either be a part of or see a son or daughter come to know Christ, maybe a friend or a co-worker come to know Christ. I think about a meeting uh, I had last month with someone that had grown up in church. And he called me up and he just said, Lauren, I need to meet with you. Judges, which is the book we're going through right now, he's like, it is rocking my world. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, I finally get the gospel. Like, I've grown up in church, and I thought it was so much about me and what I do for God rather than what God has done for me, and I'm finding a new identity in Christ. And he's like, I believe in Jesus, like like the real Jesus. And man, that, that, that just destroyed me, like with tears of joy. 
Because when someone gets it, you just, it never gets old when someone receives the gospel and really understands it. Now, you know what else never gets old? Hearing about other people's stories of when the gospel first came to them. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Listen, I'm going to just tell you that you need Jesus. And the most important thing, more important than anything, more important than everything, is that you know who he really is. And because you're here today, that tells me that Jesus loves you deeply. Because somehow you made it here. I don't know how you got here, but somehow you made it here. And that shows me that God loves you deeply. And you are being pursued by Jesus. You may not know that, but I'm telling you it's true. Now in the book of Acts, you see what is the beginning of the massive expansion of Christianity. As you guys have been kind of working your way through Acts, you you realize that Christianity started in Jerusalem. Then at the beginning of Acts chapter 8... You see, it begins to be expanded because persecution hit in Jerusalem. The church just couldn't huddle up and stay safe. And so they begin to move out into the area of Samaria. And today, it truly is about going into all the world as it moves into the continent of Africa into Ethiopia. Now, for the most part in Acts, Dr. Luke has been talking about the crowds, kind of the masses responding to the gospel. But today, the camera kind of hones in on one single person's conversion. Now, that's important. You know why? Because God doesn't just love numbers. It's not just about the 3,000 or an entire town of Samaria. He isn't just about masses or nations. Oh, he is about those things. But he loves faces. He loves individuals. And specifically, God truly does love you specifically, individually. And he's got a plan to seek you, to find you, to save you, not because you're awesome, but because he is. Now, as we read this text, first, I want us to rejoice together in it as we see a conversion taking place. Now, that's something we should never, ever stop rejoicing about, just like you cheered a little bit ago. But second, we get to learn from this specific conversion. We can learn what does it look like to actually become a follower of Jesus. What does conversion look like? What is somebody that doesn't really know God, is wrestling maybe with who God is, what does it actually look like when they begin to follow Jesus? Okay? So we, we, we learn that. Second thing we learn in the text is what does it look like to share what you believe about Jesus? And if you're here and you know Jesus, you literally have this incredibly amazing gift that absolutely does change lives. Your life is an example of that. That's a message that we have seen and you will see throughout the book of Acts that gets declared as the church just expands with the simplicity of the good news of the gospel. So with that in mind, let's jump into our story. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord... You know it's not going to be a normal day when the angel of the Lord shows up at your door, right? When the angel of the Lord shows up, it says this. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go down south, which is a long ways from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Gaza was this nasty, out-of-the-way town. 
Like one of those kind of like redneck towns you go through anytime you just leave Central Oregon and you kind of start to go, well, anywhere east, right? You know the ones I'm talking about? They have like $6 gas now. It used to be four, but now everybody's got $4 gas. So it's like $6 a gallon gas. It's got maybe like one burger joint, maybe a coffee shop that isn't open, a motel that looks like Psycho could have been filmed in that specific spot. And for no reason, the speed limit changes from like 55 down to 24 miles per hour. And there's like a tiny little sign you don't see and six police cars waiting behind there to write you a ticket. And it's just the joy of their day to do that to all of you out-of-towners, right? You know what I'm talking about. That's Gaza, okay? So when you think Gaza, that is the road to Gaza. So we are clear. It is way, way out of the comfort zone of a Jew to go down to Gaza. Even today, Jews don't want to go down to the Gaza Strip. It's also very, very, very inconvenient to go to this specific spot. Depending on where he was in Samaria, this could have been up to 160 miles away. And he's walking, just remember that. People sometimes complain about the inconvenience today of traveling on like a mission trip, right? They're like, oh man, we had to fly like 12 hours, my movie selection screen, it didn't work, we had a three-hour layover in Paris, it was terrible, I have jet lag. When you get to heaven, Philip is going to be like, I walked 160 miles, so just shut it, right? Like, I got one up on you, so don't even go there with me. But he walks out into this desert place, he's, he's in the middle of nowhere. What happens next? It says, He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip runs over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, we get to the reason why Philip is going into the desert. As we are introduced to this man, we, who becomes kind of the center of attention in this particular story, we just learned a lot about him by all of those titles that just got thrown our way. First of all, we are told he is an Ethiopian eunuch. That means, on the one hand, he is a black African man. He is from Ethiopia, which at that time meant the Upper Nile regions, so kind of part of Egypt, but it would go all the way down into the Sudan. Second, he was a eunuch. What is that? Well, if you like Game of Thrones, it means the unsullied. That's what, that, that's what he is there. But I've got to be careful here today because it's not my church. Um, <laughs> but how do you become a eunuch? Literally, you're castrated, which was really weird because I was just talking to Jessica about this. I said, I might get myself in a lot of trouble here today. She's like, oh, Brett knows all about that. I'm like, what? <laughs> really confused. Forgot you had goats. Forgot you did that. We could have done a demonstration on stage today or something. But if you want me to put it into uh, biblical terms, Deuteronomy chapter 23 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly 
of the Lord. Now, I've been looking for a reason since junior high to say that in public. Um, you can tell I've matured a ton uh, since reading my Bible as a junior higher. Um, but you might think, why would anybody do this, right? Well, for some people, it might be an injury or it might be an accident. Now, that's a bad day in the Bible, but not this guy. This was part of his employment contract. I'm going to say that again. Being a eunuch for the queen of Ethiopia was a part of his employment contract. You see, he's the CFO, kind of the head of the treasury for the queen, which you might think, hey, that's a, that, that's a good job right there. Now, if you want that job, you better read the fine print of that job description. That job description is like, are you good at money? Like, yeah, you know, I, I can count. I got my accounting degree. You start to read a little bit further where it gets a little bit small. Must be willing to be castrated. Wait, what? I mean, that's down there. It's really small. Might have an asterisk next to it. But, but, but for you to take this job, you really have to want this job. You're really willing to do anything for it, which shows us that accounting is a very difficult profession in the Bible, right? Now, the reason this was a part of the job, you might be like, why in the world? What is going on here? Was you're working specifically with the queen. There are princesses. There is likely a harem of the king. And if you're a guy working in close proximity, you could find yourself a little bit interested in some of the ladies in the king's harem or the queen herself. And the king thought... I don't want anybody getting involved with a lady or ladies. So they came up with this idea that anybody that works closely in the king's court, they will just castrate all of those men. And so to get the job, you had to be forced to, forced to or accept to be castrated. So here's this Ethiopian eunuch. That's how he got there. He's in the middle of nowhere. Remember, he's going towards Gaza. He works for a pagan queen. He was likely very wealthy. He's riding in a chariot to Jerusalem. That's like a government-issued escalade for him to get to that spot and to come back. He has an Isaiah scroll. Remember, they didn't have all the Bible they could just pack around with them or have their Bible app that was just on their phones. No, no, no. That scroll itself, just the Isaiah scroll, and he might not have even had all of it, would have been incredibly expensive. Now... We learn he had come to worship God, which means at some point he was like a Jewish uh, proselyte. He had converted to Judaism, or at least he was flirting with the idea of this type of spirituality. Now, all of a sudden, this crazy Jew named Philip comes running up alongside the chariot. Now, who is Philip? Uh, We meet him in Acts 6. He was a godly guy that was filled with the Holy Spirit. He loves Jesus. He's a missionary. He's a minister. He's an evangelist. Uh, If you read the first part of chapter 8, he went into Samaria to preach the gospel. He brought joy, the Bible says, to the entire city. He was obedient to just go wherever God told him to go and talk about Jesus. Now, think about this Philip. He's a Jewish man. He and the Ethiopian are incredibly different. They are racially different. Um, They are sexually different. Um, He would have been seen to the Jewish people as a sexually altered kind of a barbarian. 
This is so different than who Philip is. Remember, uh, the Jewish men got up every day, and this is the prayer they prayed. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I mean, that was the Jewish man's prayer. Jewish men were told, you don't want to participate with people who are different than you, who, 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 who act differently than you, because they might defile you. If we think about this in regards to Jewish culture, this is about as defiling a person as possible, this sexually altered barbarian. Yet something is bringing them together. Someone is bringing them together. And who's doing this? Oh, it's all over the story. God. Like, God is doing this right here. Who produces Christian conversion? Who's the first agent of conversion? The answer is not that hard to see who is working, who is moving first. And the answer is it's God. His fingerprints are all over the story. First, an angel says to Philip, go down this road. Then the spirit gives Philip incredibly detailed instructions and says, the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot, stay near it. And then Philip ran up to this chariot. Do you see what the spirit is doing? Why would he have run in order to stay near the chariot? That's weird because it's moving. The man is in a chariot and the spirit says, go run alongside of the man in the chariot and get him into a place where he's going to hear Jesus and convert. Philip would never do that on his own. You don't just think about it. Think about like if like a presidential candidate was coming through town or a delegate was coming through town. You don't just roll up to them. They got security all around that. He rolls up to this royal chariot. And the Spirit told him to do it. You don't do this unless God is actually doing something. You also don't put this in the Bible unless it actually happened. It's a crazy story. So here's Philip. You know, he's coming up. He's running up to this chariot. He's like, hey, 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 I see. You're reading something, right? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm reading something. Do you understand it? Well, no, I, I, I really don't. Would you like some help? See, the Spirit is absolutely involved in every single little aspect of the situation. Why? Jesus was continually saying when he was alive, I want my message, my message, to go to all peoples, all ethnic groups, all races, and all cultures. At the end of the book of Matthew, the famous Great Commission, he says, go to all the nations. The Greek word there is ethnos. He actually says, go to all the ethnics. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, I want you to be my witness in Jerusalem, in Samaria, which we see at the starting of, the, uh, of chapter 8, and then go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you know in that day, Ethiopia was considered the outer edges of the earth. It was kind of frontier land. So what God actually said he was going to do, he's actually doing. Jesus, in every way, says to his disciples, my message isn't just for people like you. It's for all races and all people. And yet we see something in the beginning of the book of Acts. God has to do some serious prodding and poking and even allowing persecution to get them out of their comfort zone to go fulfill what he asked them to do. He has to push uh, uh, Peter 
to actually go talk to some Gentiles in Acts 10. You'll see it coming up. He has to push Philip, a Jew, to go talk to a black African man. Over and over, God has to give very specific directions. Go down that road. Do you see that chariot? Yes, stay with that chariot specifically. Now, we see two things in that. First, who produces conversion? It's not the Ethiopian, and it's not Philip. It is, in fact, the Spirit of God. That is how people are born again as the Spirit begins to move on people's hearts. Nothing else could have produced uh, this conversion. And as you follow the book of Acts, God had to practically drag his people to cross racial lines to lead people into conversion with the Holy Spirit. So the agent of conversion is always the Spirit of God, which should give us a, a, a lot of rest in that. Like it's not just up to you to save your kid. It's not just up to you to make sure the coworker, the friend, the mom, the dad, it's not just up to you. It is up to the moving of God's spirit. And as you follow the book of Acts, you, you definitely see that. Second, the spirit desires Jesus for all peoples. Jesus for all peoples. So if there are racial groups or cultural groups or immigrants or aliens that maybe we don't like, you, maybe you kind of look your nose down at, at, at them. You, you kind of despise. Literally in doing that, we're resisting God's heart and God's spirit in the Great Commission. We're quenching the spirit of God. The spirit of God says, go across that barrier. I want you to get to know them. I want you to run alongside them who are completely different than you. And I want you to actually listen to them and their questions. I want you to listen. See how contrary, like, racism in general is to the gospel. Do you know what racism is? Racism is trying to find identity apart from God. It's, it, apart from God, our self-worth is based on something we can be proud of, that we do better or have more because of simply just like our skin color than other people. And that's where we get our self-worth. So for some people, that's their works, Right? Western culture, especially, is in that category. In more traditional cultures, it's not so much what you do, but what you have. It's who you are, your race, your culture, your tradition, your family, your status, or even your role in the family. That's very much Eastern culture. They find so much of their identity just in who they are. Now, that's not the gospel. The gospel of grace is that you're saved apart from your color, apart from your works, your accomplishments, and the Spirit of God brings the love of Christ to us freely. And if you get the gospel, it's because the Spirit is with you. And if the Spirit is with you, it will be constantly pushing the gospel on you, bringing a unity with you to others around you. Now, even though God is instigating this moment of conversion. God chooses to use us in that, which is a marvelous thing. Even though it's the Spirit, he says, I'm going to take a guy like Philip, and I'm going to use Philip to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer put it like this. He says, we are not building God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom, and we are praying for the privilege of going along with it and being involved. What a privilege what a privilege that is. 
Philip is now being pushed right into that. And what happens next? Listen to what happens. It tells us in verse 30, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture, this is very important, that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, love that line, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Here you have Philip running alongside the chariot overhears that the guy is reading the prophet Isaiah out loud, which is a pretty amazing coincidence, right? Philip just starts by asking him questions. Do you understand what this is all about? And that's pretty simple evangelism 101. Just asking people, do you get it? I mean, you can even ask that question this morning to somebody next to you or behind you or on on the way out or, or, or in a home group. It's like, Do you understand what we are even talking about? Do you know what the gospel is? You're struggling. How can I enter in and just just ask, how can I help you? Any of us can do that. You see someone struggling, frustrated for all sorts of reasons. They may not always be wrestling over even a biblical question, but every question can actually have a gospel answer. There is a gospel answer to a lot of the questions that people wrestle with. Every question is an opportunity to share Christ. A couple of years back, I I coached softball um, uh, for a little bit, and I showed up on the field one day. I started playing catch with one of the dads, and we got to talking about what I did. For whatever reason, he thought I was a contractor, which is probably the furthest thing from the truth of what I can do. Uh, But when he found out I was a pastor, I I finally told him, like, yeah, I teach. And he's like, well, what do you teach? And I teach the Bible, and sometimes the conversation just cut off right there. But he's like, oh, he's like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, I just picked up a Bible last week, and I started reading this book. I think it's called Leviticus, and I'm like, oh, shoot. You know, like, <laughs> and he's like, literally, I don't get all those sacrifices and, and all the blood and, and, and all of the stuff. Now, now, it was crazy because as a church, we were actually walking through Exodus at that time. We were talking about the temple and we were talking about sacrifice and how Jesus is the better temple and Jesus is the better sacrifice and how all of those Old Testament things were just projecting forward uh, to him. And so, so I'm sitting there and basically I'm playing softball with him and God just throws me a softball. Like it was an easy lob and I just told him about Jesus. Well, he starts coming to church, he gets baptized, and he starts following Jesus. It's an amazing story. It's just crazy, right? And it's just a question. It's just a question. That's all it is. Sometimes all it takes is a question. Well, the eunuch fires back with three questions of his own. How can I understand unless someone helps me? Who is this talking about? And if you're from church, the answer is 
Always Jesus. What prevents me then also from being baptized? Now, I love this. Here is the finance minister of a nation. He's hit the top. He's powerful. Uh, He can read, which is a big deal back then. It meant he had an incredible education. He's also incredibly wealthy. And along comes Philip, who had just been kicked out of his home in Jerusalem. He's kind of homeless right now. He's, he's hanging out in Samaria. He's got no horse, right? No wealth, no chariot, no stature. And he is like, do you understand? Do you, Mr. Minister, understand what you're reading? Do you need help? Now, most people would look at this stranger running outside your chariot and be like, let me get back to you, right? Because this is a little bit crazy. Because people like me in my place don't need people like you. Or people like me, educated people, we can just figure this out on our own. That's not what he says. He says, I need someone. I I, I need someone to help. If he, the eunuch, doesn't recognize his need, this man would have never connected with God, and we wouldn't be reading this story right now. But... He knows something about himself. He's got a need. That is vulnerability right there. He admits his own ignorance and not being able to understand uh, the scriptures. Until we realize we are not the expert on everything, there will not be change. (laughs) Conversion happens when as the spirit is moving, we realize our need outside of us for help. Now, we're in the Northwest. We kind of typically think we're kind of pioneers. We don't need anybody's help. Our families were pioneers. We're self-made people. We've got Google, and we can ask Alexa. Okay, so uh, we don't feel like we need others uh, for help. We can kind of feel like that. You can kind of feel isolated, like, I'll figure it out on my own. You know, you're not going to have your life changed by God until you realize you need help. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm looking out here. You need help. I need help. I look in the mirror every day and I'm like, it's only by God's grace. Because I need help. How does the Spirit help us? He sends us people. That's cool. He sends us the body of Christ. And you are the body of Christ that God wants to send in Redmond. Like he's choosing you to do this. He is working in the midst of community. He is inviting these two complete opposites. They couldn't be more opposite into a moment of friendship, relationship, and community. So the first question of conversion is, I need help. Now let's look at the second. What am I reading? Who is this about? What is this? Now check this out. He's reading Isaiah 53, 7, and 8. That's what he's reading. Now, it's fascinating. Remember, I told you, he's at the top. He's, he's successful. Um, but he's paid a terrible price to get there. He's not happy. He's, he's spiritually empty. He's traveled hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to come and worship the God of the Bible, to learn about the God of the Bible. Ethiopia had lots of gods that they worshipped. 
What would make a man do something like that? There's only one answer. This is a man in serious spiritual search mode because he's being prompted by the Holy Spirit. This is a man who also must be seriously empty. He's made it to the top and he's, he's not happy. One of the reasons we don't have more people in serious spiritual search mode right now is because those of you who haven't made it to the top, you think that once you get there, you're finally going to be arrived and you're going to be filled and we're going to be full. But here's a man that's already had that illusion shattered. It's, it's, it's never what you think it would be. And if that's your hope, making it to the top, elite CFO, you're going to end up crushed. And this guy is crushed. He's searching. He's wondering. He must have been incredibly empty. So he goes to Jerusalem looking for spirituality, looking for religion to fulfill him. Now he gets there. And he probably wouldn't have known this until he got to Jerusalem. But check this out. This is crazy. When he got to Jerusalem and he would try to go into the temple, what would he have been told? I read the verse. You're not welcome here. You're a eunuch. Eunuchs can't go on to the temple grounds. All of his hope, I'm finally going to make it. I'm finally going to arrive at religion and spirituality and I'm going to have peace because of what I am doing for God. And he gets there and he's shut out. That was the rule. There were a lot of people who weren't allowed on the temple to worship lepers, those born out of a forbidden union, all sorts of people. But Deuteronomy 23.1, which we read, also sexually mutated people were not allowed into the community of God. So here is a guy that would have been highly esteemed in his culture next to royalty, but among God's people, he would have been considered a cast-off, lowly. Come to worship, denied access due to the law. Imagine that moment, he gets to the temple, right? And they're like, you can't come in. It's kind of like Clark Griswold, you know, at Wally World. Just that devastating moment. It's like, we made it here. We barely got here. The car's not even hardly driving anymore. And I'm sorry, kids, it's closed. Devastating, frustrating. Imagine the turmoil as he's been turned away, and now he's going back home. Can you imagine how deformed he feels? How rejected he feels? How unclean he feels? How cast off he is? And look, he's scouring what book? The book of Isaiah. Now, we know he's reading in the 50s in Isaiah. They didn't have numbers and stuff back then, but he's in the 50s in Isaiah. If you open the Isaiah scroll... And you read the part he's reading when Philip comes to him in the same place, same place. Check this out. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. Here's what the Bible says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me. He's a foreigner from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. Listen, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. 
I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be, interesting choice of words by Isaiah, cut off. That's amazing. Let not the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree with no fruit. Instead, God says, I'm going to give you an everlasting name that will never be cut off, better than sons and daughters. He must have been thinking, no way. There is no other way to have a name. He lived in a time when the most important things were your descendants. They were your legacy. The most important things were sons and daughters who carried on your name. He couldn't have them. He would have thought, how in the world could I have an everlasting name? How could I possibly get something in my life better than sons and daughters? How could I not be a dry tree? So he's scouring Isaiah and he's looking through Isaiah and he comes upon that astounding passage in Isaiah 53. And what does Isaiah 53 say? He was despised and rejected of men. Who? The eunuch must have thought, I can relate to being despised and rejected. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He, who is this he, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Here's the passage he was actually looking at when Philip comes running up to him. He, Isaiah 53, was like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? The eunuch is going, who is this? Show me. I can relate to this. I I, I get this. I, I, I feel this. Who is this figure who voluntarily has become a eunuch, who voluntarily is cut off without descendants, who voluntarily takes injustice, who is voluntarily pierced. He's doing everything I'm experiencing, but he's doing it as a substitute. Who is this? And at this moment, Philip just happens to be right there. Running alongside. And the guy's going, who is this? Is Isaiah writing about himself or someone else? That's a softball lob. There you go, Isaiah. Or there you go, Philip. Tell him who it is. Philip says, I know just who he's talking about. Talking about Jesus. Philip just starts preaching the gospel. It was so easy. About how Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better temple that you get access to. Jesus is the better priest that wouldn't turn you away. And in Jesus Christ, God came and put himself on the cross. He paid the penalty. He was made unclean so that you could be made clean. He was cut off so that you, eunuch, could have an everlasting name. That is the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus did something for you. The gospel is not, what would Jesus do? Thank you, the 90s. The gospel is, what has Jesus done? That's what changes you. 
Every other religion is spelled D-O. You go do. Because they tell us we have to perform good works and obey morals and religious laws in order to find God, to achieve forgiveness, to obtain nirvana or peace. But you can never be sure that you have D-O, that you've done enough. All forms of religion are D-O, you go do. But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, it's done. Because God sent his son to the earth to live the life we should have lived and die on the cross to pay the debt that we should pay for the wrongs we've done. See, that's the difference. The Buddha, he said, final words, strive without ceasing. Jesus said, it is finished. To become a Christian is to turn from do to done by asking God to accept you, not because of you, but for Jesus' sake, and commit to live for him. Now, here's the key. The moment you understand the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is what we're talking about here, as both true, like it happened, and it happened for you because God loves you, this is the moment your identity structure is changed. This is the moment of conversion. We're just like I'm sitting in the coffee shop with my friend who'd grown up in church all of his life. Says his mama, talked to him about Jesus all the time. But he's like, I never understood that it was done. I didn't get it. It's no longer based on something uh, I do uh, or I can be proud of that you do, which is better than others maybe. It's based on free, amazing grace. That's when you're converted. Now this man comes to his third question. This is where we land the plane here this morning, which obviously was covered by Philip in his gospel presentation. He says, repent. (laughs) You got to repent. What you thought about you and what you know to be true about God, turn. Turn to him. Be baptized. Baptism is your initiation into the family. It's a means of grace pointing to your conversion. This man is saved, and now he's going to identify himself with that believing faith. He hears this, and he's like, What is preventing me right now from being baptized? He says, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Do you know what he's doing? He doesn't say, Philip, baptize me. He says, shouldn't I be baptized? Why not? You know what he's doing? He's allowing Philip, somebody in his life, to kind of evaluate the conversion that took place. He'd heard the gospel. He'd believed it. So why didn't he just say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life? There's nothing wrong with that, and that's good. But when you just simply pray, Lord, I want to believe in you, come into my life, I give my life to you, that's just a nice individual you and God thing, right? Just me and God. He's my homeboy. But notice he doesn't turn to Philip and say, I've had a religious experience, but I don't want anybody evaluating me. It's between me and God. I believe religion should just be a private thing. No, listen. You can pray a prayer asking Jesus into your life as an individual, but to be baptized, you have to get somebody to do it, right? Nobody baptizes themselves, right? We don't do that. He knows enough to say, I know you won't baptize me unless you've evaluated something about me, unless you've seen something with me. And the best place for evaluation is in community. It's in the church, not the building, the people. So with baptism, we see that the Spirit of God is the agent of conversion. 
He uses community and people and friendships, relationships to be a part of that to help understand who Jesus is. And then Philip baptizes him. Philip gets to partner with God in this conversion. And then just the creepiest thing happens in this text. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotos, and as he passed through, huh, he's preached the gospel, because that's just what he does, to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip just Star trek right out of there, right? You would think uh, it'd be a time for discipleship, years and years of training, that he should go with the eunuch, that he could help him, right? But that's not God's plan. Philip did what God called him to do. And now this man, he rejoices. This man goes from brokenness to confusion to rejoicing. And that's what the gospel does. It takes you from brokenness to confusion to rejoicing. It unites people. You never think it would unite for the purpose of reconciling the people of God. Is this not an amazing story? It is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. A middle-aged Jewish man putting his arms around a sexually altered black man and calling him brother. Only the gospel does that. The gospel changes how we see and view people. It strips off our sociological lenses It enables you to cross the line. Society says you're not allowed to cross to go be with them. Only the gospel does that. And you know what this man would do with the gospel? Irenaeus, early church father, tells us he became a missionary amongst his own people. He brought the gospel back to Africa. Some of the first Christians were Africans. He took what he had heard, what he had learned, and he shared it, all that he knew, To the ends of the earth. Isn't it amazing to see what happens when people meet Jesus? I want to encourage you. Be ready to be used. Be ready for the softball. Be ready for the hardball. Be ready to go. Be ready to give them a Bible. Encourage people to read. Be ready for the questions. And the answer of who? It's Jesus. Not that they have to be Jesus, but that they have to see their need for Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are truly grateful for the grace that you have given to us. Each one of us sit in here this morning because somebody came to us. Some person, some friend, pastor, somebody that discipled, and they handed us the gospel. And you have been gracious to pursue us. We don't ever want to overlook the fact that you have sought us out, those of us that are lost, were lost, and we can say that we are found found by a good God who cares deeply for our souls. You love us. You've given yourself to us. And now we just want to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This time we want to invite you to come to uh, the table to partake in the body, the blood of Christ. This is God's gift of grace to you that you get to receive. And we do this not in in a manner that's kind of solemn. We do this in a celebratory manner. No matter where you are, no matter what jacked up thing you did this week, like you come to the table because Jesus did something for you. It's not what you did. So you come and you take of the body. You come, you take of the blood. And that is God's gift of grace uh, to you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we just invite you to come to the table this morning. If you desire to give, there's boxes in the back. We're just going to continue to celebrate him. Yeah, let's do it. Let's all stand.
heard a cool thing a couple weeks ago, that God has no grandchildren. That is to say, we all must become children of God ourselves. It's not something you marry into. It's not something you're born into because your parents are followers of Jesus. We all have to make that decision. So if you don't know Jesus, make that decision. And if you do know Jesus, I just want to ask you one thing. Are you looking to him or are you looking away from him? There are a lot of people who can be very close to Jesus, right? We're all here on Sunday. You're, You're close to Jesus, but are you looking? Are you searching? Do you need him? Lord, so the tables are open. So you can come, grab the bread and the cup, bring it back to your seat. At any point during this next song, you don't need to rush the tables. But let's spend some time now looking to Jesus, remembering his life, his death, his resurrection, what he has done for us. So the tables are open. Grab the bread and the cup, bring it back, wait, and then, uh, Brett, you're leading? Yeah, Brett's going to lead us in communion after this song.